Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host, the Executive Director of BCLT, Wayne Stacy, And once again, we are here with Michael Smith. And as you know, if it happened in Texas and if it matters, Michael knows about it. So Michael, tell us what we need to know about the last couple of weeks. Well, the last couple of weeks, the main thing is we've seen a bunch of letters. We had letters coming out of the clerk's office in the Eastern District, and we had letters coming out of the United States Senate in Washington, and that got a lot of attention over the last week. Well, the the ones that that are coming out of the clerk's office look like an administrative nightmare to kind of get all of this cleaned up or in compliance with the the exact letter of the, the rule. Yeah, what, what appears to have happened is the Eastern District Clerk's Office is sending letters out to everybody who was ever involved in a case that Judge Gilstrap ever had since he's been on the bench, in which his family had a trust, in which a trust that a family member had an interest in owned a stock of one of the parties. So I know I saw it in, I don't know, a dozen or so, maybe a little less than that, cases, all of which are closed. Presumably, if it's an open case, there would be a recusal, and that would then require appointment under the local rules of the other judge in the division, and then he would continue with the case. Coincidentally, I had one of those situations come up three weeks ago where a party raised, had nothing to do with stock ownership, had to do with a case Judge Gilstrap had worked on before he came on the bench, and they raised it, and he recused that afternoon. So we got to see how quickly the thing went through the process. And within 24 hours, another judge was appointed. That judge had asked a magistrate to go ahead and go forward with a case. But what will happen with these letters is the clerk's office wrote and said, here's the situation. Judge's family member had an interest in the stock of one of the parties. If you want to raise any issues in connection with this, please do so in the next 30 days. And another judge will take a look at them. So presumably people will be looking at that. Again, that's a universe of about 130 cases, I think. So we'll know in the next couple of weeks how many of those actually generate a request. Just to be clear, there's absolutely no accusation that Judge Gilstrap ever did anything wrong, that he was biased anyway. This this is really an administrative issue related to a family trust. Right, right. No, No accusation I've seen from anybody. It's simply a situation where The judges said publicly he didn't believe he needed to recuse. Apparently, they've made the determination that they're going to go ahead and invite people to file any motions they think are necessary as a result of it, and any pending cases will move to another judge. Now, because we know the judges involved, as soon as I got the notices, they went in the trash because it's not something that I think had anything to do with anything. And again, if it was a defendant, They already knew who held their stock. So the only way this would come up is if there is a plaintiff who felt like they can make the argument that the stock ownership had something to do with them losing a case. And I just, I know most of the people that file plaintiff's cases around here, and I'm not aware of anybody who thinks that has anything to do with anything. Well, this is a a great example of, of how to handle issues like this. An issue pops up, administrative issue pops up. There's a difference of opinion. The ruling goes goes against you, you just make it right and just take care of it. And it seems like that's exactly what Judge Gilstrap's done is once it was clear that he needed to disclose, he's done everything possible to, to make sure he complies with the rules. 
I think that's absolutely correct. So we'll see what it generates, but looking at what the standard would be to change anything, I don't anticipate anything will come of this. But as you say, if it's an issue, it's now been resolved with disclosure and giving parties the opportunity to object. Well, I guess maybe we should look at some actual rulings on the merits. I saw a verdict come down in Marshall. We did have a patent verdict out of Marshall last Friday. That was a plaintiff's verdict, infringement, willful, not invalid, and the jury awarded $7.4 million. The plaintiff had asked for $9.3. It was, I mean, it's always a pleasure to be over there trying cases, but that's why I've been a little, little submerged for the last couple of weeks. We put a lot of time in. The case involved two parties who were not from the United States, so it's always fun to kind of be able to show clients and opposing parties this is how the jury system works. Well, that may be a discussion for another day on how those new to the jury system see it for a, for a civil technology-based trial. Well, I will say this. It is interesting to see them talk about how totally alien the concept of a jury trial is to them. But if you sit in the courtroom and you watch the instructions that Judge Gilstrap gives the jurors and the history that he gives them about the jury system dating back to the ancient Jewish people and ancient Greeks and Romans and so forth, and then the rigorous attention that's paid to the importance of evidence in the case. I mean, I may not like the outcome, but I'm awfully proud of those jurors. They work very, very hard. I tell people, if you see juries in and out, you realize why the system works. And it was a good week of watching the interplay between the bench and the jury, trying to make sure that the outcome was decided based on the evidence that was presented. And then we had every opportunity to argue what that evidence meant. That's a great transition into one of the, the key roles for any judge, and that is screening expert opinions and making sure the jury doesn't get any prejudicial information. And I think we had a, a couple of rather interesting uh, telling type of uh, decisions coming out on damages. We did, and I pay close attention to those. The first one was a, uh, in a case that was the other one that was set to get our jury and settled just a few days before uh, we went over for, uh, for jury selection. The plaintiff's expert submitted a report with a reasonable royalty and relied on conversations with the technical expert, which of course they have to do. So the question was whether the opinions were sufficiently disclosed and the court said they were disclosed in this case, but fortunately, and, and I say fortunately, because I like it when orders come down with some admitted and some excluded, so I can kind of see where the judge draws the line. The judge did exclude some opinions where he couldn't locate anywhere in the technical expert's report where he said what the damages expert was relying on. So that was a very interesting order. Another order that we got in another case was striking part of a defendant's technical expert. The expert had hand measurements of something, and the court said in this context, that is unreliable. That is not sufficient. But the court still allowed the opinions in, pointing out that they were based on more than just the unreliable measurement. So again, this is a good example of an order that says this is unreliable, this is not. The opinion either does or doesn't come in so that I can see kind of what do the judges that I appear in front of find helpful, find not helpful, admissible, not admissible, reliable, not reliable. It's not helpful when everything's out or everything's in. And these, this was a couple of cases where we could tell that the court gave us some good guidance on what you have to have to get an expert's opinion in.
Well, and, and I looked at those and I, I thought they were also good examples for attorneys on what to do and what not to do. In the second opinion, the expert had an, an alternate way to, to introduce that measurement. Weren't dependent upon one source of information. You know, that old single point of failure wasn't there. So it was a really, really well done report. Um, it may have lost a little of it, but the report was safe. You know, the other report was interesting. And you know, my experience is it's always dangerous to rely on a, an expert's memory because they're working on four, five, six, 10 cases at a time. And you better at least put bullet points in a, in a report to jog their, their memory in a deposition. And it seemed that, that this expert couldn't point to the report or the deposition. Right. Right. And, and that, that's, a good, that's a good point. If you need to work backwards, what I talk about is working backwards from the charge. What findings do I need now? What evidence do I need? I need an expert. What does the expert need to say? Okay, what does the expert need to have reviewed? And then it's all got to be in there because we know how closely the judges enforce the rule that it's got to be in the expert's report. I had that come up in our trial where experts were not constantly, but repeatedly there would be an objection that's not in the expert's report and you had to be prepared to explain either it isn't or it is and there might be a little bit of a, a time sanction if you lost that fight there, there wasn't in our particular case but I have seen that come up in other cases you, you said you wanted to go back to letters um, how about the, the two letters that maybe don't mention Judge Albright by name but are pretty obviously aimed at him I would say so. I would say so. Uh, we did. We had a letter that was sent from the chair and the ranking member, which would be Senator Leahy and Senator Tillis of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Intellectual Property Issues. And they wrote Chief Justice Roberts, who is chair of the Judicial Conference, asking him to look at issues dealing with assignment of cases in, uh, in patent litigation cases as a result of concerns they have over the way case assignment works in the Western District and slinging a lot of mud at the court down in Waco uh, on that. And then later that same day, Senator Tillis sent a letter to the acting PTO director saying, I want you to look into whether it's still appropriate to give credence to the district court's statement as far as what their time to trial is, because it's all wrong. It's all wrong. It's never right. Well, it depends on which cases you're looking at, and it depends on which vintage cases you're looking at on that. But that is some, another example of prominent legislators who play an important role in debating legislative policy on patents, uh, speaking out to the PTO and to the Judicial Conference uh, about their concerns over the way cases are handled. It'll be interesting to see if the Judicial Conference comes back with, with proposals, proposed legislation, and I assume all of this is going to be focused at intra-district or, or divisional assignments of cases and whether they should be random, like the Northern District of California, or whether uh, you can go to single judge courthouses and pick your judge. That's going to be the discussion for the next six months. Right, right. No, no, no. I think that's absolutely correct. Well, uh, you know, a lot of that relates directly to, to venue, and there were a, a couple of, of interesting venue rulings that are that are coming out, maybe slowing down a little bit, but uh, what did we have on venue? Well, we had, uh, it's hard to follow all of the venue rulings coming out of Waco, but there were three in particular that I, that I wanted to cover this week. 
One dealt with an improper venue challenge and Judge Albright noted that, okay, the parents got a regular and established place of business in the district, but the subsidiary does not. I, I tend to see that more in the reverse. You've got venue against a sub, you don't have it against the parent. But in this case, the judge pointed out that the plaintiff was not very careful about the parties they had sued, that one of the parties was proper, a venue, the other was not. In the second case, he transferred a number of cases that were pending in his court in an MDL proceeding to the Northern District of California. But again, because it's an MDL, he, he continues to work the cases pretrial. He's just making clear that when he finishes working in pretrial, they'll go to California uh, for trial, which is how MDL works. And then finally, uh, there was a divisional transfer to Austin. Now, that's not the important part. The important part is that you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about some of the guidance from the federal circuit is that district courts can't just assume that certain witnesses won't be necessary. They can't just make blanket statements about, well, these, these people never testify at trial. It needs to be tied to the facts of the case. So in this particular case, uh, the future link case, we see Judge Albright providing case-specific reasons why in that case, the identified prior art witnesses aren't necessary in the case. That's what the federal circuit said he needs to do. So he did it in that case. Now there's some interesting language in here. He says that the federal circuit has recently held that courts cannot wield the practical fact that only a few non-party witnesses will testify at trial to categorically ignore prior art witnesses or give less weight to laundry lists. Well, that was kind of the rule we were used to before, but the federal circuit has said, you can't, you can't simply say, look, I do this for a living. These people are not gonna testify, move on to the next factor. They said, you've got to tie that down in a case. So he says, well, in this case, I'm according their convenience less weight because the defendant hasn't shown they have relevant knowledge. And he goes through the facts of why that is the case in that case. There are facts specific to the case. There's also the fact that the defendant didn't bring this up until the reply brief, and he cites uh, Judge Bryson's dissent in one of the Apple mandamuses in 2014 for pointing out that the district court can ignore something that you don't bring up until the reply brief. Just good old-fashioned civil procedure right there. Right, right. I'll hold my breath whether it's civil procedure after I see it go up on, on mandamus, but um, at the moment, that is, that is good civil procedure. Well, we've had a, a couple of verdicts out of the Western District, and one surprise location, I, I would say, is the, the best way to describe it. We did. Last Thursday, a Waco jury in Judge Albright's court also put out a uh, verdict in a patent case. Coincidentally, the same day they were picking a jury in another case, another patent case. Uh, I knew because the same lawyers in my case were involved in that one. But in the verdict last Thursday, the jury found all the claims infringed, none invalid, and assessed damages of $13.8 million as to two of the defendant's products and a little under $300,000 as to the third. And they said, well, infringement was willful as to the first two defendants. The defendants had actually stipulated to infringement as to two and a half of the three patents. So the case was really about infringement of a few more claims and predominantly about validity and about damages, but it's one more data point we get in Waco for what Waco division juries think of patent cases. They've come out more on the defense side, but the more cases we get, the more the statistics seem to be creeping back towards the national average of 
50, 60% win for plaintiffs in patent cases. It's still a little under that, but it's it's getting back that direction. This one falls in my category of the jury hates you. Be interesting to read the the opening closing, see kind of how this played out, but there was not one win for the defense side here. Now that's just hateful, Wayne, because that's what happened to be bright. Actually, that's not true. I was walking back over to my office after the verdict came back with the uh, other side's lawyer. I handled damages issues. She handled damages issues. And she looked at me and she said, wait a minute, I'm the only one on my side that lost because you got our damages knocked down $2 million. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm taking full credit for that too. That back, means at least then, one of the jurors liked you. But yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe. But again, we actually saw the same thing in the third verdict that we saw here. It's not common for the plaintiff to win on, on everything. But but as you said, when they win, they do tend to win on everything. Uh, this was a San Antonio jury and Judge David Ezra's court. And the jury found all accused products infringed, none of the claims invalid under any of the theories. And interestingly, the judge also submitted the factual issues having to do with inequitable conduct. So the jury was asked to decide if there was intent to deceive the patent office, was the undisclosed patent material, and they found, again, no to that, no un unclean hands, and assessed damages at $969,000. So maybe it would have been better to hang on to that inequitable conduct for the court to decide for the reason you just said. If the jury had decided that the defendant was wrong, they now lost everything. The biggest question here is, San Antonio? How? Why? I've, I've never seen a, a patent case tried down there. And I'm sure well, there are, but I just never came across them. Well, sometimes the Postal Service just delivers the mail to the wrong courthouse, I guess. Um, no, it's Judge Albright has transferred cases from Waco to San Antonio. If you go to him and say, hey, Judge, the facts in this case are in Austin, the case tends to go to Austin. If, it, if the facts are in San Antonio, I've seen the facts go to uh, the case go to San Antonio. I don't know offhand if this case originated as a divisional transfer, but it, it wouldn't be unusual uh, for that to happen. San Antonio's got a lot of technical activity going on, and Judge Albright has made pretty clear that he will send cases within the district to the division where the activity is. So if you're a defendant in the Western District, you can usually get a transfer to whatever division you're in. Well, we'll watch for more things happen there, see if the Riverwalk becomes a a tourist spot for trial lawyers. I always like to go to San Antonio. It'd be fun to try a case down there. Well, Michael, thank you. I uh, hope you can catch up and get some rest after a couple of weeks of trial, but I appreciate you taking your time with us today. I appreciate it. Have a good week. Take care.